I know some of you grew up with Mr. Rogers, maybe. Some of you, I think everyone knows who Mr. Rogers is. You never know in our diverse generations that we have. But uh, he was such an important guy. I love Mr. Rogers. Um, and what was his message? His message was a message of love. It was helping others. It was a message of kindness and dignity and respect and equality. And a message that you are loved just the way you are. That's what he says. You're loved just the way that you are. And this sounds like a biblical message, doesn't it? Well, it should, right? Because it actually is. We can see this in John 13. Here it says, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you so that you may love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. You see, the heart of God is love. And that love, it calls us, it compels us to demonstrate the reality of God's kingdom, his kingdom, the kingdom of God here on earth. But here's the thing. What will show the world that this is true that the kingdom of God is actually good news, is how we love and care for others and seek justice for them. Today we're going to continue in our sermon series here in John, which highlights the radical nature of Jesus' love. And we're going to look specifically at John 8 to see what we can learn about Jesus, to see how he loves people, because this is his character. This is his essence. So here's what it says in John 8. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus, he bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said, then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. This is a story about judgment. It's about law, mercy, and guilt. It's a story about one person who has done something terrible and feels horrible regret and shame. It's about another group of people who have done something equally terrible, but they feel no guilt at all. They are so concerned about that awful moral erosion in society that they can't see the rot in their own souls. And of course, this is a story about Jesus. The story begins quickly with a woman who gets caught having sex with a man who isn't her husband. And a group of supposedly concerned religious leaders bring her to Jesus and they quote the Old Testament. And the verses say that the woman should be stoned to death with rocks for what she had done. Yes, that was normal in those days. 
This is what it looked like in the Old Testament. And that is what the law said. The religious leaders, they're all men. And they probably quoted from Leviticus 20.10, which says, If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress must be put to death. Quick question. Where is the man in the story? Exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> yeah, he's not there. And why is that? Well, actually, I don't know why he's not there, but it's wrong, right? The law is that both should be there. And it looks like the religious leaders are just going to blame the woman for what happened, not the man, too. But the interesting thing is that according to these verses, the religious leaders are not really focused on the woman. That's not their real objective. They're trying to trap Jesus by asking if the woman should be killed according to the law, and Jesus won't have any of it. He bends down and writes on the ground, and then he says, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And then he writes some more on the ground. And the men start to leave until it's just Jesus and this woman. And then he asks her if anyone condemns her. And the woman says no. And he tells her that he doesn't either and that she should leave her life of sin. That's it. That's the basic story. But it leaves so many questions that are unanswered. Questions like, what does this story mean? Why was Jesus writing on the ground? What caused the religious leaders to walk away? Why do the older men walk away first? Why does Jesus engage with this woman? And what can we learn about Jesus from these verses? To get the answers to these questions... We have to back up to the previous chapter, chapter 7, where you would read that it was the time of the Festival of Tabernacles. Okay, last week, Pastor Mark talked, and he gave a background on what that festival was. So I'm going to go through kind of some of the highlights of that feast and what it meant. And after we're done looking at it, stay with me because it will matter to how this story in chapter 8 plays out. The Festival of Tabernacles was one of the seven major feasts in the Hebrew calendar. And it was the feast that came right before winter when hopefully rains would come and water the crops so that they would grow, so that in the spring you would have food to harvest. And if the rains didn't come during the winter, you might ha not have food and you could sadly starve. And thousands of pilgrims in the first century would pour into Jerusalem for this festival and the eight days of feasting, staying in makeshift shelters, which are called Sukkots in Hebrew. And these shelters reminded them of how their God had cared for their people many years earlier when they had journeyed in the wilderness. You can see how a story from the past and about how their God had cared for them and provided food would resonate with them as they faced a coming winter and the pressing question of whether or not the rains would come and bring them a spring harvest. During these eight days of the festival, there were sacrifices and prayers and singing and rituals oriented around asking God to bring the winter rains. The religious leaders would teach during these eight days about the significance of water. Water is rain. Water is divine provision. 
water and thirst, and thirst as a metaphor for spiritual longing. There were lots of teaching about water. The eight days all build up to the last day when the high, high priest, he would take a pitcher of water and a pitcher of wine and pour them over the altar while the crowd chanted, Hosanna, Hosanna. Hosanna means God save us, as in God please bring us winter rains to save us from drought and famine. And as you know, later Hosanna began to have political connotations, as in God save us from the Romans who have invaded our lands. Which brings us to chapter 7, verse 37, which says, On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. The first thing I notice is, why is Jesus speaking with such a loud voice? Well, the answer is because it is the last day and the crowd would have been chanting loudly and Jesus wants to be heard over the noise that is gathering uh, amongst the crowd. And the second thing I notice is what he says with this loud voice. Jesus is shouting out, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. You see, Jesus chooses this moment, a moment when people were really focused on their very real physical needs for water and calls them to their spiritual thirst. Thirst, he insists, he can do something about. And you know the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are not happy. They're not happy to hear what Jesus has to say. And I can imagine them planning and scheming and trying to find a way to trap Jesus to bring him down. And the festival, it's crowded. There are thousands of people in Jerusalem feasting and drinking and celebrating and chanting and praying and living in makeshift shoulders on the side of the hill in Jerusalem. And what often happens when lots of people drink and camp together? Well, I know I am in church, but here's the truth. They end up in each other's tents and in each other's arms. Can you see how two people might end up in the wrong tent, regretting decisions they had made the night before? It's not surprising then that the next morning, here in chapter 8, the teacher of the law and the Pharisees, they drag into the temple courts a woman they had caught with a man who wasn't her husband. They bring this woman to Jesus because they want to trap him. These men are more than willing to humiliate this woman publicly because, frankly, it's just Jesus that they are after. And this woman, she is just bait for the trap. She's hardly a person to them. She's just a prop. She's an object. They don't care about her. They are just using her, and they strip her of all of her dignity. And so they challenge Jesus with a passage from the law. They say to Jesus... Our scriptures say this woman should be killed. What do you say, Jesus? These men are probably thinking to themselves, we have Jesus now. He's trapped. If he shows mercy on this woman, then we will get him for being soft on the law. If Jesus says stone her, the crowds will never forgive him. Plus, the Romans had forbidden the Jews from executing anybody. If Jesus says stone her, he would be in serious trouble with the Romans. And so, picture this. Here is this woman, trembling with guilt and fear, 
wishing she could die, believing she's about to, and they don't even see her. All they can think of is we have Jesus now. They stand there. They stand there. They've appointed themselves judge and jury, and they stand with stones in their hands just waiting for the word. And Jesus isn't phased by the trap at all. And he does the most amazing thing. He bends down to the ground and he starts writing in the dust. And what does he write? Well, what are the Pharisees and teachers of the law, what have they been doing for the last eight days? They've been at a feast. And what have they been doing at the feast? They have been teaching. And what have they been teaching? They've been teaching about the spiritual significance of water. And what passages from the Hebrew scriptures have they been teaching on? Good question. One of the passages that was taught at the festival of the tabernacles is from the prophet Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 17, 13, and the passage is about dust, which is what you have if you don't have water. Here's what the passage says. Lord, you are the hope of Israel. All who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. You see that? There's the line. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust. And what did Jesus do in this story? He bends down and writes in the dust. You see, Jesus takes one of the passages that they all would have been familiar with, and he enacts it all without saying a word. They've rejected him. But instead of saying it, he alludes through his actions of writing in the dust to a verse they were just teaching, essentially implying that they, the concerned religious leaders, are the ones who have turned away from God, not this woman. These men could see the woman's sin, but they couldn't see their own. And suddenly, as Jesus is writing in the, dr- the dust, the truth about them is revealed. They are not what they thought they were. They are not champions for God. They are not fighters for morality. They are cold-hearted, arrogant little circle of stone throwers. That's what mean little kids do. They just throw stones to hurt people. Jesus is basically saying, go ahead, guys. Just make sure that whoever goes first is without sin. Jesus is writing the dust, and again, they stand there. And then the oldest men, they drop their stones and leave, probably, because they can recall all of the things they've done in their lives that they are not proud of. And then more stones drop, and eventually the younger men, they drop their stones and leave because there are things that they have done, too, that they would be embarrassed by if others knew what they had done. And eventually all the men are gone and all the stones have been dropped. And then Jesus comforts the woman by letting her know that the men did not condemn her and neither does he. Through his actions, Jesus lets this woman know that these men, these supposedly superior men, have acted poorly and turned away from God. Through his actions, Jesus restores her dignity and tells her that her slate has been wiped clean, that she's been fully forgiven. This is a powerful moment between Jesus and this woman, and it's a powerful story. Here's the thing. 
you can read this story lots of ways. One way to read this passage in John 8, and the way most people read this passage, is that Jesus is a God of grace and truth. Jesus says to the woman, has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said, then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, go now and leave your life a sin. We learn from this passage that when we acknowledge to Jesus the truth, that when we turned away from him, that when we've missed the mark, that we have sinned and now have turned back to him seeking his forgiveness, well, Jesus will forgive us and Jesus will forgive us completely. All true and beautiful. Another way people read the story is to say it's a wonderful lesson about how we should be less judgmental. You know, don't throw stones at people when they screw up because we all screw up. And it's important not to condemn others, to judge others, but to give people grace and kindness and understanding because truth be told, we all do awful things. We do. So the message we learn from Jesus is don't judge others and throw stones. But I think there's a third way to read this story. When I read the story of Jesus and this woman, I look at Jesus' behavior. I see a man of action. He is not passive. I see Jesus step up to help this woman, to protect this woman, to engage these religious leaders because they want to literally throw stones at her, to kill her, and to take away her dignity. But Jesus stopped these men with his words and with his action. I love this story because it shows me the character of Jesus that he loves and that he cares. And this story reveals to me that Jesus is a stone catcher. He doesn't just think about helping the poor. He doesn't just write about helping the oppressed, the sick, or those without power or a voice that will be heard. He actually does something. He's intentional and he engages and he helps those that are having stones thrown at them. Stones like words of judgment, acts of hate and prejudice, laws and social practices that are unfair and unjust. Jesus stands with them because he is a stone catcher. And we can see this in how Jesus lived. He was a friend with the outcasts, friends with the poor, friends with those that did not have power, friends with people that the religious authorities in the church today might call sinners. Jesus offended people by what he said as well as what he did. He touched, ate, healed, named, loved, celebrated, listened, served, and died for supposedly all the wrong people. The Samaritan woman at the well knew it. So did Simon the leper. So did the tax collector Zacchaeus and Levi. And get this. These people liked being around Jesus and longed for his company, even while the legalists or the religious leaders found Jesus shocking, even revolting. And it makes me wonder, what was Jesus' secret that we have lost? Jesus is a stone catcher. And as followers of Jesus, we should be stone catchers too. We should. But to do this, to become a stone catcher, we must first take our eyes off ourselves so that we can become aware of the injustice and the ocean of pain that is in this world. We must open our eyes to those close to, close to us, but also to those who are suffering further away 
nationally and internationally because the love of God goes beyond the shores of America. We know this. To be aware, we must read, we must ask questions, and we must seek out all the information we can on issues and problems that God puts on our hearts. Tragedies like racism, hunger, homophobia, sickness, mental illness, sexual abuse, sex trafficking, homelessness, and the list could go on. But here's the thing. Awareness is a part of being a stone catcher, but there's more because there is more work to be done. As a stone catcher, we must engage with people, our sisters and brothers who are personally experiencing trauma and pain and injustice. And we must become an ally where we engage in deep and honest dialogue about what our friends, our neighbors are going through. And then we need to intentionally assist our neighbors and our friends where we care where we're empathetic, where we help our friends in their struggle by using our voice, our money, our time, our power, and our influence. And as stone catchers, we should also be advocates. This is where the pain and suffering that others are going through becomes our struggle too. And because of that, we become outspoken advocates going the extra mile, passionately seeking assistance, or raising awareness of the problem, the injustice, and recruiting other allies. And to be very direct and candid with you, the truth is we don't always stand with our friends, our neighbors, people that need our help. Because we don't always understand what they're they're going through. We don't get it. And the church many times doesn't get it. And frankly, I don't always get it because of my experience. Based on my background, my education and culture, my gender and race, and my privilege in this world. This gives me all the reasons I need not to care about justice. To be indifferent to the evil and mistreatment of others and to the unfairness that is around me. That is the way it is with the majority of us who live as a part of a dominant culture. In general, we find our lives acceptable, not getting all we might desire, but having most of what we need. Yet most days, the concern for others or justice issues are not on our agenda. And the truth is, justice has been built into systems that benefit many of us. We don't wish others to be deprived. We don't. But we grow complacent in our awareness that the justice we count as normative simply does not exist for many others. In the end, it mounts to a life that assumes the blessing for ourselves without either the urgency or the passion to seek it for others. As a follower of Jesus, as a theologian, as a global citizen, I have to ask, Why does so much of society, why does so much of the church live so complacently complacently in a world where each year nearly 5 million children die worldwide before the age of 5? Where there are more than 40 million slaves globally today, that's more than ever before in human history. Where an unarmed black man two weeks ago in Akron, Ohio, fleeing from the police after a traffic violation can be shot over 60 times. 
where a woman has a 25% chance of being sexually assaulted sometime in her life. Where only 8% of trans youth say their place of worship is accepting of them. Well, the answer has to do with our heart. And the heart is hard to change. The fact is, systemic injustice thrives because human hearts accommodate it and allow it. Edmund Burke said this. He says that all that is necessary for evil to triumph is for good men and women to do nothing. Most of us have hearts that lead to do just that, my heart included. Now, to be clear, our hearts don't consciously will injustice, nor do they deliberately withhold compassion, nor is it that tales of injustice fail to grab us or concern us. Yet our hearts are easily overwhelmed and self-protective. They are prone to be absorbed mostly with the immediacy of our own lives and our own inner circle, our tribe. But here's the problem. In a world of such hearts, injustice and suffering thrives. Yet our scripture tells us repeatedly to love others. Scripture describes the one who follows God as the one who will deliver the needy who cry out the afflicted who have no one to help. He will take pity on the weak and the needy and save the needy from death. He will rescue them from oppression and violence, for precious is their blood in his sight. Friends, Jesus modeled this. He lived this. And the truth is our hearts have been truly made to love. That is why as followers of Jesus, we are given his power, the power of Jesus to change our hearts, to love, to serve, to do, to do justice. And with our changed hearts, we can see people differently. We can see people as Jesus sees them, where we care for all people because that is Jesus's heart. Take, for example, the horrific problem of world hunger. It is a defining daily experience for about 660 million children worldwide. And to bring it home, there are 16 million American, American kids who struggle with hunger each year. And here's the thing. I can know this. I can understand it. I can be worried about it and still hold it at a great distance. However, the phrase starving child becomes different with the addition of the simple word, my the truth of hunger has not changed by the addition of that small pronoun, my, but by the addition of that one word, one word, the injustice of world hunger lands forcefully in our lives. The actual injustice is still the same, but the confidence that something must be done is immediate and unequivocal. The difference between starving child and my starving child is as different as their starving child is from our starving child. And if all starving children are gods, then in some sense, all starving children are also ours. That's the difference. When our hearts can have the same empathic force it would if the injustice, injustice were against us or against those we most love, then we will feel the inward urgency to help others. And it is then when the chances of a more just world becomes ever brighter. When we sing that old song that Jesus loves the little children, all the little children of the world, red, brown, yellow, black, and white, they are precious in his sight 
we must not forget that he of whom we sing has declared himself to be a God of love, a God of justice. And when we are stone catchers, we are doing those things that are important to him. So what does a stone catcher look like? Jose Andres is a famous chef, you may know of him, who started a nonprofit in 2010 called World Central Kitchen in response to the tragedy in Haiti in 2010. And since then, wherever there is a problem in the world, they tend to show up. They call themselves food first responders. And they showed up at the U.S.-Mexico border. They showed up when there was a typhoon in the Philippines. And right now, they're in the Ukraine. That's a stone catcher. Brian Stevenson is one of my heroes. He founded the Equal Justice Initiative and has spent decades through his nonprofit law office defending the poor, the incarcerated, and the wrongly condemned. He wrote a great book called Just Mercy. That's a stone catcher. Some of you in this room are involved with International Rescue Committee. And more recently, have been helping a refugee family from Afghanistan settle in America, helping them to get the necessary kitchen appliances, helping them to learn how to take public transit, whether it's trains or buses, how to find an apartment, how to get kids enrolled in schools. You guys are stone catchers. Some of you turn up on El Camino in Palo Alto every month with signs to remind every passenger in cars that drives by that black lives matter and that we have not forgotten and continue to push for equal rights and justice. You guys are stone catchers. And Jesus modeled for us how to be people of action and compassion as he willingly stood in front of a vulnerable woman to protect her as she was about to get stoned. Yes, Jesus is a stone catcher. Fred Rogers made the following comment. He said, when I was a boy and I would see scary things in the news, my mother would say to me, look for the helpers. You will always find people who are helping Can you imagine a world full of stone catchers? A place where we see the world no longer focused on our small community, our small world, but through the embrace of God's love in Christ that calls people of every tribe, tongue, and nation into a new humanity, into a world of God's justice and mercy. A place that is one large neighborhood that hears and helps each other, that is safe, that is kind, full of dignity and equality, And a place where you are loved just the way you are. I want to join these stone catchers. I do. Who model Jesus with his radical love and change our world one stone at a time. How about you? We're going to transition to our time of communion right now. And I think this is a great time as we prepare to take the communion elements that you begin to think about who Jesus is. How does he live? What did he do? And then kind of ponder upon yourself, Jesus, how could you help me be more like you? To be stone catchers. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many, for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. We are all invited to the table. Everyone can come to this table because of Jesus. Amen.